Hey, everybody. It's Amy Walter, editor-in-chief of The Cook Political Report. You're listening to The Odd Years, a political podcast designed for the off years, literally the odd-numbered years where there are no scheduled federal elections. This week, I spoke with Republican pollster Kristen Soltis-Anderson. She's the founding partner of Echelon Insights, an opinion research and analytics firm. Kristen is also a familiar face to those who follow politics. You've likely seen her on CNN or Fox or ABC News or myriad of other political programs. She hosts her own serious XM program, The Trend Line, with Kristen Soltis-Anderson. And she leads focus groups for the New York Times opinion section, America in Focus. Oh, and she's an expert on millennial voters and has actually written a book about that, too. Now, I've known Kristen for years, and I can vouch for her insight, thoughtfulness, and thoroughness. She leads with data and analysis, not with opinion or hot takes. It just so happened that we scheduled our interview for the Tuesday afternoon that former President Trump was getting arraigned in a Manhattan courtroom. So, of course, we had to start our conversation there. So glad to have you joining us here on the Odd Years podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It is an honor to be here. Thank you. Now, Kristen, you do a lot of things really, really well. You're an expert on millennial voters. You lead focus groups for The New York Times. You run a polling and analytics firm. You have your own serious XM show. You have an adorable baby and dog. But I got to start off by asking you the thing that I'm sure everybody is asking you right now, which is, as we speak, it is 2.07 on April 4th, 2.07 p.m. Former President of the United States is getting arraigned right now. He has been indicted, as we all know, the first former president in history to be indicted. Can we actually know what this is going to mean for 2024? I don't think so, which is not a very satisfying answer. I know it's, it's not. I have to say it all the time, but it's true. That is methodologically, intellectually honest. Um, mm-hmm. There's a there's plenty of reasons to think that this would be a negative, right? That this contributes to greater chaos. It reminds voters of the things they don't like about Donald Trump versus the things they do like. It keeps the focus on an issue set that is not as advantageous to Republicans. Republicans are very sore about not doing well in the midterms and the red wave not having materialized. And so the easy answer is this will hurt Trump. Then there's the revisionist view, which says, no, no, actually, this helps Trump because you get the circle the wagons effect. You get Republicans rallying around him, much like they did after the initial raid on Mar-a-Lago, but it makes Republicans defensive of him. And so it's the kind of in the same way that, you know, if somebody outside of your family insults a family member, you're like, hey, you can't say that about my dad. You can't say that about my sister. But like you personally, you can criticize your dad and your sister, you know, inside the family. So, you know, with Donald Trump being arraigned, okay, that's now someone outside the family coming after my guy. Okay, fair enough. Um, But we we did to the extent possible the closest thing to a methodologically sound approach on this, which was we asked a question of Uh, Republican primary voters. And we said, if there was a head to head matchup between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, who would you vote for? And this was in uh, about a week or two ago that we were in the field. And when we asked Republican primary voters this question, Donald Trump won that by 25 points. 
This is before the indictment came down. Then we said, suppose Donald Trump were to be indicted on one of these charges that he is up, uh, up for, potentially. Then how do you think you would vote? And the gap kind of closes by about half. Um, I think you wind up with Trump plus 12. So he's still ahead, but by less in this hypothetical world where you're asking a poll respondent to imagine right. a thing that hasn't happened yet, but might possibly happen. All right. of which is to say, you should be very skeptical of even findings like that. I mean, it's Thanks. my poll and I'd be the first to tell you, like, don't read a lot into this. It's like the best way to understand this. And it's also not a very good way to understand this. Uh, I think that's a perfect way to answer that, Kristen, because we're going to have a thousand polls coming out between now and the course of the next week or so. And they are going to tell us something about this moment, but they're unlikely to be predictive of the Republican nomination, of a Trump versus Biden matchup. Um, what should we be looking for, though, in these reams of data that are going to come out between now and then? Is there anything worthwhile to look for? So I would continue to watch polls coming out of critical 2024 general election swing states and the extent to which Donald Trump, his standing among general election voters changes. Does it change at all? Or are we just so polarized that this something like this is kind of already priced into how general election voters are thinking about a hypothetical Donald Trump, Joe Biden matchup? Because while on the one hand, I've seen a lot of evidence that Republican voters don't really blame Donald Trump a ton for the lack of a red wave. And they're a little skeptical whenever someone like me tries to make a case about electability and what counts as electability, because, you know, over the last decade, a lot of people have described what electability is, and that's not Donald Trump. And yet he was president of the United States. But I think to the extent that you have polls now that I see a lot of these swing state polls that at least as of last week, Donald Trump and Joe Biden are pretty close. Like the idea that Donald Trump could not be elected president next year is false. But if all of the sudden you start seeing in these key swing states numbers that instead of it being Biden up by one or Trump up by one, if suddenly it's Biden up by eight, Biden up by nine in key swing states, do you suddenly start seeing a lot of Republicans begin the I like Donald Trump, but dot, dot, dot process? Does that begin? And that's the best thing that could happen for someone like Ron DeSantis. Well, let's talk about him for a second, because as you pointed out, there were polls even before this indictment kind of all over the place on Ron DeSantis. There were some head to head polls. I think there was a Marquette poll that came out recently that has DeSantis up significantly one on one. There were other polls like yours showing him even in a one on one trailing. In a multi-candidate race, Trump is ahead, maybe by a couple points, maybe by double digits. But let's get into the path here for a uh, Florida woman, Kristen Soltis Anderson, who Proudly. grew up in the Orlando area. Um, make the case here for Ron DeSantis. And specifically, I'm not asking you to say anything about what you would like or not like to say. I don't mean it that way. But politically speaking, it seems or maybe strategically speaking, there's been a whole lot of hand-wringing, I would say, and armchair punditing 
about Ron DeSantis's lack of frontal assault onto Donald Trump and that the more that Donald Trump attacks DeSantis, the more that DeSantis comes out and attacks the Manhattan DA, he's just playing into Donald Trump's sort of game. I think that Ron DeSantis needs to show that he can be just as bold as Donald Trump. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that he has to take a sledgehammer to Donald Trump. I thought the interview that he gave to Piers Morgan in some ways was pretty savvy, actually, because it was a little bit of that iron fist in a velvet glove, you know, uh-huh. kind of laughing off Trump. But but taking a couple of digs at him, I think the problem is going to be if you try to make everyone happy, you'll make no one happy. And so there's a way to walk that fine line where you are per- offering uh incisive criticisms that do not sound like you are starting a food fight that prove that you're not afraid of Donald Trump. I think that's important. I think if he looks like he's afraid of Donald Trump, that's killer because the number one thing all these Republican voters want is someone who's not afraid. They want a fighter, et cetera. And that's a big part of what Ron DeSantis has claimed he is. When he says, I can inherit the mantle of Trump, it's all about being a fighter. Think back to the speech that he gave at CPAC in either, I think it was February 2021. It was just after January 6th. It was when people in the party were going, whoa, what's next? How do we how do we turn this page? And he gave that speech where he said, look, all these Republicans up in Washington, they're they're too caught up in think tanks and white papers. And it's time for us to just put some points on the board. And when the lights are shining down on you, who's the one that's not going to fold? And that's me. Well, now he has to prove that he has to prove that he's that person. And I think a challenge he's going to face is that in Florida, he's really been facing, you know, he doesn't really engage a lot with traditional or hostile media. He has a legislature that's very friendly to him. And so he can say, I'm a fighter and I stand up and I don't fold when the lights are bright. But now that's going to get put to the test and he can't fail that test because there are others like a Nikki Haley, like a Mike Pence, who would love nothing more than to begin eating into his vote share while Donald Trump presses him from the other side and squishes him into oblivion. Mm-hmm. That's right. I completely agree with you on that. And I guess the question is for Ron DeSantis or the other challengers showing that they're bold, but also not intimidated by Trump. Does that happen like organically? How do they prove this? Does it show up just in certain settings like a debate? Or can you do that? via the media, social networks, taking on Trump in his own backyard? I don't know. How how do you go about doing that? Well, I think some of it is going to be in debate settings, for instance. I mean, yeah. we've seen people who claimed they were big fighters who have withered on the debate stage and suddenly that just evaporates, right? But I also think, you know, one thing that DeSantis has always done Uh, And you can just decide whether you think it's effective or not. But he has the folks around him be fighters more than he is, right? Like, he's not someone who is on Twitter lobbing bombs. He has a press apparatus around him that does that. He has a staff around him that does a lot of that. Um, Where for Donald Trump, it is Donald Trump truth socialing and, like, putting it out there under his own name. But at the same time, I wouldn't be surprised to discover And I think I've read a little bit of coverage about this, that there's like a digital campaign going on right now, that the Trump team is not afraid of sort of putting stuff out there that sows doubts about Ron DeSantis on social. 
And if you aren't seeing a counter force, you know, that's not something where people are going, hey, the candidate themselves is saying mean things about this person. Like when you're talking about a digital ad, digital messaging campaign, it is a little bit of arm's length. And I think it would be smart of someone like Ron DeSantis to begin punching back, even if it's not punching back in their own words, having that punching back happening through digital advertising, et cetera. Clearly, something like that is eating away at DeSantis's support among the most tuned in, most online voters at this point. That's where I would I would encourage him to have a response. I don't know that I would encourage him to do like another sit down interview with a Piers Morgan type where he's just a little bit spicier this time. I mean, maybe Mm. that could work, but I think it's got to be other messengers in and around DeSantis that are sympathetic Mm. to him so that people begin to say, "Okay, this is an apparatus that is ready to fight, too. Right. So given what we've just talked about, it seems as if you are a bit skeptical that there is a majority of the Republican primary vote that is looking for an alternative to Trump or is, I call them sort of alternative curious. They're not hardcore Trump, but they like Trump. They're not anti-Trumpers, but they are this group of voters liked Trump, liked his presidency, but are worried either that he can't win or just, as you pointed out, kind of tired of all the drama, ready to turn the page. Is that a fair way to, yeah, to, to think, think about way, how you're well, looking at this? The way it this? breaks down is I think about 30 percent of the party is always Trump. Mm-hmm. I think that there's it is hard for me to imagine Donald Trump going below 30 percent nationally. That may vary state to state. There may be some states where that number is higher. There may be some states where it's lower. But I feel like 30 percent is the number that lately I have been pegging as always Trump. I think there's another 10 to 15 percent, again, depends on what state you're looking at, that is never Trump. They are like, I'm a Republican. We have got to get rid of this guy. Please, please, please give me an alternative and I will go with that alternative. But that still leaves a 55 percent of the party. I don't want to take credit for this term, but it's somewhat or sometimes Trump. You're not never Trump. You're not always Trump. You're sometimes Mm. Trump. And that's the group where. I think messages that just say, hey, I like him, but we need a new generation of leadership. Like, what does that really mean? I mean, that depends on an alternative being really, really, really strong and appealing. I do think, however, the I like Trump, but I'm worried that he puts 2024 in jeopardy and we can't wait for 2028. I mean, you see in all sorts of polls that the Republican base has a very apocalyptic view of what, what how things are right now, that they believe that the country, that I've seen numbers, they, the country can't survive four more years of Joe Biden, those kinds of beliefs. And so in that kind of heightened moment of panic, I wonder to what extent that's different than 2016, where in 2016, Republicans felt like a Hillary Clinton presidency would be disastrous. But they were also skeptical that the same old, same old would beat Hillary Clinton. And so they were willing to kind of take a flyer on this real estate developer from New York and see if it worked. Um, But I wonder if now it's it's a a case of we can't do the risky thing. Um, And so then the question becomes, well, who's riskier? Right. Donald Trump, who has all of this baggage, is in a New York courthouse as we are talking right now. Clearly, there's plenty of risk to Donald Trump. 
at the same time, he's won the White House before. And nobody, none of these other people have. And so how do you, if you are Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, make the case that you are bold, but you are not a risk? You are Mm -hmm. someone who would be a safe steward, who would be a good choice, a no regrets move headed into a general election. I think that matters a lot. Yeah, that's an an excellent point. I'm going to switch gears for a second, looking back at 2022 and then using that to to lunge forward, specifically on the issue of abortion. And first, I'd like to get your take on and your analysis on the role that abortion played in the midterm elections and specifically the ways in which Republicans did or did not effectively um, handle this issue. So midterm elections typically favor the party out of power, and that's because voters don't turn out to say thank you. They turn out because they're mad. They turn out because they don't like what's happening. And the overturning of Roe versus Wade inverted that dynamic for the midterm. So instead of it being Democratic voters who were getting the Inflation Reduction Act and Biden policies here and there and, hey, y'all are in charge and You get to nominate your judges and it's Republicans who are the ones on the outside without the power, feeling like they need to send a message, feeling like they need to turn out to seize back the reins of power. The overturning of Roe versus Wade suddenly puts Democratic voters and key parts of their, you know, younger women in particular, who may have been less inclined to, frankly, to turn out in this midterm, to suddenly feel that I'm under siege and I need to send a message. And so it blunted the normal forces that you have in play in a midterm because voters don't turn out to say thank you. I did not see in any of my data that pro-life voters were saying this was the most important issue to me and I'm going to turn out to vote to secure further gains on my side of this issue. But you did see a lot of voters on the other side say, you know what, this is my number one issue and I'm mad as hell about it. And so that's why I do think it it was a factor in the midterms. And as we move forward, I think a lot is going to depend on how does this play out in the states? Because, again, you will have a lot of these states where Republicans are, you know, you see this in Florida right now, passing further restrictions. And, you know, there's a real chance that this creates an additional political bind um, by continuing to elevate the salience of the issue and You know, for a long time, Republicans have tried to make the case that it is Democrats who are outside of the mainstream on this issue, that the core of the Democratic base wants, you know, abortion at any stage of the game, that they celebrate it rather than viewing it as, you know, a morally unacceptable but sometimes regrettable, necessary evil, you know, those sorts of things. But suddenly, if you are passing a ban that says it's six weeks with very few exceptions and so on and so forth, that is also outside of the mainstream of where public opinion is. And so, you know, you're going to find very few states, I think, winding up with a policy that looks kind of like the median voter, which is to say sometime in the second trimester, you know, you have a lot of exceptions. You're going to have a lot of states, I think, going full red. And you're going to have a lot of states that say, look, in a post-row landscape, we're going to protect abortion at all stages for any reason, no matter what. And neither of those positions will be in the mainstream. And so I think it'll depend on like which state you're in. Yeah. How the politics of this issue play out as you move into 2024. But to your point about Florida, can Ron DeSantis sign a six week bill 
and then go campaign in Arizona and in Pennsylvania and Michigan, places where the abortion issue was front and center and Democrats won in 2022, at least. I don't think that at the moment the pro-life movement has been effective in messaging its position in such a way that a politician can go and win a national argument at six weeks with some, but not a ton of exception. I, right. I, I think that is, I think that's tough. Um, now there's, you know, I, I think there's also a chance that this issue is not as salient in 2024 as it was in 2022, that other issues rise to the fore. It's always easy to think that the big issue of the moment is the thing that will define the election 18 months from now. And so there's a chance that just the salience of the issue will have faded as it takes on a life of its own as a state's only issue. Um, but I think that is a dangerous gamble for anyone who is pursuing a policy that is outside the mainstream on either side, either too uh, stringent or too permissive. Um, there's there's risks there that it it will still be salient in a big way in November 2024. Kristen, you're an expert on a generation known as the millennials. And as a an older Gen Xer, you know, I have my issues with the fact that nobody studies us. Everybody talks about boomers. Everyone talks about millennials. No one talks about us, but whatever. That's okay. We're cool. <laughs> We're used to being looked over. Let's talk about them for a second, because I think there are still many people who think of millennials as young people. Uh -huh. They are in their 30s. They're turning a 40. They have kids. They have houses. They're getting knee replacements, right? Like the suffer full grown <laughs> adult. Um, we now even have the term geriatric millennial, of which I am one. Have you ever heard this term? It's there. No, there how can you be like, a geriatric millennial? Yes, there were a handful of articles about this somewhere around a year or two ago. I remember them popping up and it. It almost felt like I joke that it sounded like a condition for which like, you should have to go. Like, if you know what a floppy disk is, if you know what a cassette tape is, please contact a doctor. That's right. Um, but yeah, the, the millennial generation is not young. And the gamble that Republicans made was that millennials would get older. And as they did, they would pay taxes. They would buy homes. They'd have kids. They'd get married. They'd start going to church. They'd do all of the things that correlate with conservatism and would start voting Republican. And you are seeing that, on the one hand, they vote slightly less Democratic than they did in 2006, um, but they are not a Republican constituency. And that's very unusual, because if you actually look back at midterms two or three decades ago, voters in their 30s, voters in their 40s were generally a pretty swing group or a mm -hmm. Republican group. And that's just not what we see in the data. So there is a lot of, I think, uh, for Republicans, the opportunity with millennials, I mean, the door may almost be closed at this point. Like, it's just been too many elections where Republicans have whiffed with millennials that undoing the damage at this point is very challenging. Gen well, Z is really fascinating. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Do they have more in common with Gen Z? Or I guess it depends, again, where you are in the birth order. Or is it not? Is it a way of thinking of the world that puts millennials and Gen Z into just a very different category than their parents and grandparents. The reason why I think millennials and Gen Z often look pretty similar in surveys 
is that there's this bright dividing line between people who grew up with the internet as just a normal part of their lives and people for whom the internet happened to them while they were adults. Yeah. Um, And so that's part of why I think you do see this pretty significant distinction between millennials and Gen X and then more significantly boomers and Gen Z. I I think the role of the Internet just changing everything about the world around you can't be overstated. Now, there are differences between millennials and Gen Z. And I think some of that is also rooted in technology in that Mm. Gen Z has not just come of age in an era where the Internet was always a thing, but they've come of age in an era where smartphones and social media were always a thing. So for them, the ability to access the world from your your pocket and to constantly broadcast who you are and what you are about, to consume information about the world that is both political and personal, that is brands and issues all tangled up at once, I think is meant for Gen Z especially. A lot of the walls around their identity, the different like components of here's who I am at work. Here's who I am when I go shopping. Here's who I am at home. Here's who I am with friends. Like those things all cross pollinate for younger voters in a way that they don't for older voters. So, for instance, you see for younger voters, they're much more likely to say that they talk to their friends about politics at least a couple of times a week, which is in some ways a very odd finding considering that young voters are much less likely to vote. They're just much less likely to engage in politics on a whole host of other fronts. And yet they're the ones that are most likely to be talking to their friends about politics. So there are differences that are less in some ways about left versus right and more about how do you engage in the Hmm. act of being political that looks very different for someone who's Gen Z versus someone who's a boomer. Right. And and again, Gen X, we just kind of Bumble along until but we're Gen replaced is, by millennials. We're just going to running the show right now. Yeah. For another 10 minutes. Like, like, do you watch Succession? Yes. OK, so I'm pretty obsessed and I really love mm. Shiv Roy's wardrobe for the most part. Most recently, and she's been letting me down a little bit, mm. uh, but that's OK. Mm. I still believe mm. in her. Mm. But mm-hmm. they always talk mm-hmm. on that show about how everybody dresses with like quiet luxury. Right. So think of Gen X as you all. It's just quiet influence. They're running the show. You're not expecting everybody to write the trend pieces about you. That's right. Just okay. Just getting right. done, running thanks, the show. Thanks, thanks, Appreciate, appreciate you. I'm going to end our serious round of questioning before we get to our speed round of fun questions with a question I'm sure you get all the time. What's the matter with polling? Couldn't, didn't get 2020 right. Oh, underestimated Trump. 2022, overestimated Republicans, throw our hands up. Why do we even bother? Stop doing all the polls. Give us your answer. Oh, wise one about these. So first of all, I have to take a moment to brag on my own polling firm. Yes. And my team, I'm not taking personal credit for this, but my team did some extraordinary work. Um, They put out a number of polls in key swing states last year in the, you know, two weeks before the election. And while they were not all perfect, uh, we were, when 538 took a look at all the publicly released polls and they figured out what the error was on each pollster batch of numbers, we were top five lowest error for the 2022 election cycle. And we were the best in that regard of all the Republican firms. So that's my little, you know, the polls may be broken, but I can say <laughs> <the firm> polls. <laughs> okay. that's right. 
That's um, right. The other thing that I think is pretty funny is you've got a lot of people that will say, oh, the polls are all broken. The polls are all broken. But then they're the very same people who love to consume the polls. So we actually asked a question in our uh, survey that came out right after the election where we asked people, how closely did you follow political polls leading up to the election? And how much do you trust political polls to accurately predict the outcome of an election? So on the trust question, a majority of voters said, I do not trust the polls that much or at all. 54% said, I do not really trust polls. But then when we said, well, how closely were you following political polls? 64% of voters said they were following polls very or somewhat closely. So it's a little bit of this like, I know it's bad for me. I'm not paying attention. But they can't quit it. I would say don't don't write off the polls. There are ways of doing polling well these days. It's getting harder. The game is always changing. And while I'm proud of the work that my firm did this past cycle, we know that there is no guarantee that everything we do in 2024 will be right. The world is changing very quickly and you've got to keep up. I think the key these days to doing really good research is you have to, have to, have to sample from the voter file in some way, shape or form. If you are doing a survey of just whoever comes your way on the Internet, the amount of quality control that we have to do in our panels to get rid of professional survey respondents, to get rid of people, to get rid of bots, to get rid of garbage nonsense answers of people who are just clicking randomly really quickly to get through it to try to get a gift card. Like, you've got to have high quality control. And by rooting your survey research in the voter file, whether you're contacting people online, whether you're texting them, whether you're calling them with a live interviewer on the phone, asking them questions, be rooted in that reality, because then you also know who's not taking your poll, you know, who's taking it and you know who's not. And you can therefore have a better sense of, hey, are we systematically missing huge portions of the electorate that all look very different than who we're talking to and try to adjust for that accordingly? Um, so I would tell people, be skeptical of the polls. I'm skeptical of the polls and I make them. I live them day to day. And I'm the first to tell you, like, don't just assume that because it's numbers, it's science and therefore it's right. But at the same time, don't just dismiss it either. In some ways, it's a miracle that polls are still as good as they are, right. given the enormous technological challenges that we are facing in order to collect those opinions. Krista, one answer I give, I'm curious to get uh, your response to this, is we're asking these surveys to do something they weren't designed to do, which is to give us a level of precision that is just impossible. When we have races that are literally 5,000 votes, 10,000 votes, um, you know, literally a 48 to 46% race, if you say this is a two-point race going into it, and it's going to be decided by one or two points. Ultimately, yes, you can be off by four or five points. It's still a very, very close race. So in other words, to look at races that are basically those very, very close races and say it is possible to see either candidate win this race rather than going with the cherry picking the polls that suggest your candidate or your preferred party is the one who's been leading in most of those. Is that a fair way to think about it? Yeah. I mean, most people think of polling as the political polling that they see that affect, you know, these ratings and the needle on New York Times or whatever. And the vast majority of polling that gets done in the United States is not political. 
It is market researchers trying to figure out, are you going to go see the latest Marvel movie? What type of Cheerios, uh, you know, what what new cereal brand should we roll out? And the reality is that that type of polling, if I do a survey and I find that 30% of Americans say Cheerios is their favorite cereal, if the real, real answer is actually 24%, Right. Nobody's ever nobody's going to go fire that market researcher. No one will ever know that they were off by six, first of all. Right. And like that's, you right. know, that that's probably not going to be catastrophic to the strategic decisions of the good folks at General Mills. I believe that's who makes. Cheerios. I think that's right. Uh, but for political polling, if you're off by six, people are like, whoa, what's going on? You missed by that much. So I think political pollsters have it uniquely hard in that we are asking their research to do something that nobody else in the market research world is expected to do. Nobody else has like a moment in time where you are held ultimately accountable and you are expected to be within the margin of error or else you're considered an idiot. Um, And I also think that for the most part, a campaign is doing polling, not because they are looking for, am I up by two or am I up by three? They're looking, they're doing that polling because they want to know, is my message moving people? Are more people today than they were two weeks ago holding a favorable view of me, holding an unfavorable view of my opponent, believing my opponent is untrustworthy? To what extent have people begun to think that abortion is the top issue versus the economy? Those are the things that are feeding strategic decisions. And there, you want it to be close. But if you have 18 versus 15 percent of voters saying abortion is their top issue, that's not going to lead somebody to say, oh, gosh, you're such an idiot. You are off by three in the way that that ballot test just makes everyone a little bit nuts. That's excellent. Thank you. Um, I'm going to transition to something we like to call. It's actually less of a speed round, more of a fun round. Getting to know Kristen Soltis Anderson. The very first question I want to ask you, we've asked of all of our guests, who was the first elected official you met and interacted with personally that you can remember? Jeb Bush. I won some award in high school and went to Tallahassee for this like governor's all-star lunch, whatever. And I marched into that and I saw where the governor's table was and I just sat right down next to him. And I was terrified. Um, And he changed my mind on school choice. I was like peppering him with questions about how I was like, how can you take funding away from a public school that is failing? Aren't they the schools that need the funding the most? And like he explained to me his position on school choice. And I was now I'm like a complete Jeb diehard, you know, two, two plus two decades later. I mean, Kristen, this sounds as if almost from day one, you knew what you were going to be doing as an adult. Is that fair? I knew I wanted to be in politics Mm -hmm. in some way, shape or form. In college, I took a couple practice LSATs, but I never went all the way to that path. Um, There was a period of time where I thought maybe I would run for office. And then my first internship in Washington, I interned at the NRCC Mm -hmm. and got to watch as all of the members of Congress came through and fundraised. Like that, it just seemed to me that that was literally the only thing that was happening. Like the governing of the country made less so, but like putting in phone calls to people asking for checks was a huge deal. And that's not just a Republican thing. That is a political thing at every level of government. It is unfortunate, um, but it was also very 
eye-opening for me. And so being a pollster then meant I got to engage in the world of politics, engage in the world of policy and messaging. Like both of those things kind of come together in the polling profession. Um, You have to have an understanding of both, a passion for both. So polling wound up being the perfect fit for my long-held love of politics. When people find out that you're from Orlando, Florida, do they go instantly to Disney? I mean, do you have to come up with a Disney reference anytime you're introduced? So I don't mind when people ask me about it because it's totally true that when you grow up in Orlando, going to Disney is just a normal thing you do instead of like a once in a lifetime vacation that your family goes on. You know, it's just like the place that's down the street. Um, My high school chorus, we would regularly perform at Epcot during Christmas for the candlelight. uh, You know, they always have like a celebrity come in and like tell the story of Christmas while a bunch of Disney employees and random local high schoolers sing Christmas songs. And I was one of the random local high schoolers. You get like free Epcot tickets. I worked at Universal Studios um, for many years. I was an actress on the King Kong ride until they closed it. Not as like blonde lady being held up by monkey. Don't don't get excited. It was I had to dress as a New York City transit officer evacuating people from King Kong's wrath. Bunch of geniuses decided the best way to evacuate people from Manhattan is to put them on the Roosevelt Island tram because that's not at all a dangerous <laughs> way to evacuate people when a large monkey is attacked. So that was my very first job was working at Universal Studios. And I do not do not mind telling that story when people ask. I think it's a great, 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 great story. Okay, and then my next question for you, I also asked this of Anna Greenberg, who, you know, Democratic pollster, thinking about women doing what you all do. There aren't a ton of women even now who are either in polling or specifically run their own polling shops. Tell us from this place where you began to now, what has changed and what hasn't? So I'm going to challenge the premise of the question. Because I think when I'm thinking through the list of people who are Republican pollsters, um, you know, I started off working for David Winston, who is fantastic. The number two at his firm is a woman named Myra Miller, who's been there for 20 years, and she's phenomenal and brilliant. Um, And at no point did did I ever imagine that, like, oh, you know, as a woman, am I not going to be able to succeed in this industry? And and I think about, you know, who are the people that run GOP polling shops? And I think of someone like Whit Ayers, and I love him. And I think of somebody like a Glenn Bolger and a Neil Newhouse, and I adore them. But then I think of Brenda Giannini. I think of Christine Matthews. I think of, you know, all of these firms have women who are partners as well as the men. And so Mm. I guess I would, you know, on the one hand, it's easy to say, well, gosh, aren't there, there aren't really as many women who are pollsters. But I think at least these days, that's less true. It's very easy for me to come up with, you know, uh, names of people who are women in this space. And I think on the Democratic side as well, for a long time, I co-hosted a podcast with Margie O'Meara of GBAO. I've done projects with Celinda Lake. You've got Anna Greenberg. I mean, the the list on the Democratic side is pretty extensive, too. I may even be able to name more women on the Democratic side than I can name men. Men. I do think there's the one challenge that I have have talked about extensively, and I still don't know quite how I resolve it, is so I am younger and I am female. And so on the one hand, when someone approaches me and says, I would love to do a project that studies the views of young women, I am happy and love to do that project. And 
I feel like I can probably execute it better than anyone else, right? I feel like I'm going to have a good sense for that project. But I, you got to be careful because you don't want to lean too far into that because I don't want it to be like, well, gosh, I don't understand older male voters, right? That's like, right. True. And so there is, I think, a little bit of a dynamic where on the one hand, it's good to have a researcher who has a good understanding of the audience they want to study. On the other hand, you don't want to get pigeonholed and you don't want it to be like, well, I'll call Kristen if I need to do a project on women. But if I need to do a project on taxes, I'll call someone else. Like, no, 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 call me about the project on taxes. I'd love to do it. So that's where I feel like the politics of gender in the polling world become so interesting because huh. it is good to have a female pollster at the table when you are doing a study on women, but you don't just want to be pigeonholed into like, I only do projects about women or I only do projects about younger voters. Right. Do you think that the issue, for example, the abortion issue and the debate about whether this was going to be salient or not as salient, whether the economy was going to be more important or not important, did you ever see this breaking down along gender lines within the consulting community or within campaigns? Or was this just something that, you know, certain people had data that suggested it was going to be X, other people Y, but it, it wasn't really about whether they are male or female, how they saw this issue? So I think the divide was more partisan than about gender. You know, mm -hmm. I thought... And still do think, I mean, we now talk so much about the effect of abortion in the midterms because it perhaps over-indexed for what expectations were. But inflation was still a huge driver and is, and is a reason that you even had a red ripple at all That's right. um, to, to talk about. So, you know, I think that the dividing line on that was more about um, partisanship and expectations along those lines than necessarily about gender. But I do think so, you know, thinking about the personal lived experience, um, you know, I can think of interactions that I, as a woman who has had a child, have had with the healthcare system that make me think differently about issues of reproductive health, even if, even if you are somebody who is pro-life or thinks abortion is, is not morally great. Um, you just have a little bit of a different experience about, well, what should a question maybe look like to really get at the heart of the matter about what is it that would make a female voter who's kind of on the fence about the issue nevertheless feel uncomfortable or worried about the fall of Roe versus Wade. Like, I do think that there is some extent to which having that unique personal experience and being a woman can help you write questions that are a little bit different. Mm. But at the end of the day, we should be guided by data, not our own personal experiences when we are going to a client or when I'm coming on a show like this to tell you what we're finding. Right. Well, Kristen Soltis-Anderson, thank you so much for joining us on The Odd Years. I really appreciate all of your time and insights. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us today on this episode of The Odd Years. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform, leave a review, and if you're a Cook Political Report subscriber, check out our exclusive bonus content at cookpolitical.com. See you next time.